Lord God, we thank you for your word and we pray today that you might uh, enable us to hear it, that you might be at work by your spirit that we might. We pray that we would not be blind to you or your word or your will for us. Please enlighten us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please sit down. And uh, if you don't know me, my name's Andrew Reid, and I'm just uh, visiting uh, Malaysia for a couple of weeks, go home tomorrow night, and I've had a great time here. And I know some of you I've met uh, since I've been here, and it's been very good being here. I thank you for your hospitality, and I thank you for listening. Uh, now, I want you to imagine a situation where I'm actually going to try and cover three chapters tonight, so it's a little more than perhaps... Well, it's not more than Andrew did last week. It's less than Andrew did last week. Hopefully I can keep within the time frame that he set. Um, I want you to imagine it's another Christmas, and uh, Brian had experienced 47 of these, uh, and in many ways uh, this Christmas was like any other Christmas. Uh, in many ways it was no different at all and there were chores to do, there were gifts to buy, there were parents who needed to be driven here, there and everywhere and this year though every seemed, everything seemed a little more tedious than it usually did. You see he was having trouble concentrating. Uh, Brian's eyesight had been slowly deteriorating for years. He had glasses for reading, glasses for driving uh, this year, though, he was wearing them more and more and more. And now something was escalating in his life. He was beginning to have dizzy spells. And then he began seeing things in two different colours all the time. Um, one eye would see that the room was grey. The other eye would see it as peach-coloured. Um, within two months, Brian had a diagnosis. It, it had a long and very technical name, but the basic of it was that he was losing sight in one eye and it was unrepairable. The other eye would need to be watched closely, otherwise it might head in the same direction. Now, friends, let me tell you that in many ways, uh, Brian's story is very common. You see, all too often, blindness is not congenital. It, you weren't born with it, uh, nor is it necessarily caused by uh, sudden trauma. Often, blindness comes slowly. Uh, often it creeps up slowly. In fact, sometimes it is so slow that you don't know it's happening. At other times you recognise that something is wrong, but you, you shut it out from your brain and you pretend it's not there until it gets to such a state that you think, uh, well, perhaps i better do something about this and ask someone about this. Such slow, creeping blindness gives us a wonderful insight into the spiritual situation of our world. You see, we live in a world of wonder. We live in a world filled with technology, a world overflowing with possibilities, a world where there's an absolute wealth of possible activities that could consume us, a world where work and relationships and recreation and addictions just abound and we can choose which ones we want to do or not do. In this world, such things often crowd out our thought about God and spiritual matters. And we become, as it were, slowly blind to God. Or we willfully choose that we'll just shut out the reality of God because there's too many other things to be absorbed in. So in many ways, even, even in a country that, uh, you know, in one sense uh, is divided in terms of who it believes in God, who, which God it believes in and so on, uh, even so, I've noticed in, Bala in Malaysia that God has largely disappeared from public conversation. I don't see God talked about uh, often in the newspapers as I've read the little bits that I have. 
nor do I see God talked about often in advertisements, uh, nor do I even see his name scratched into walls anywhere. You know what I mean? It's a, it, it seems as though God has disappeared or perhaps we don't talk about him because it's too sensitive or whatever. But I suspect that underneath we are like so many other parts of our world. That is that God has disappeared from our consciousness and our public discussion. Whether it's willing or it's high-handed or it's accidental, the truth is that we live in a world that is increasingly, I think, spiritually blind. And such blindness is not just a contemporary problem. It is a very ancient problem. And that is why the Bible often speaks about blindness when it talks about spiritual matters. And one place that it does so is in the passage we are looking at today. So I want you to come with me into this ancient world And I want you to listen to the words that God speaks to this world, to our world, through his prophet Ezekiel. You see, God's words for Ezekiel are God's words for us as well. So let's get started. Open your Bibles at Ezekiel. And I can't remember the page number, but I'm sure you can find it. Uh, Now, what I want to do is this. I cannot cover all of these chapters in depth. And I'm going to isolate four truths, which I think are eternal truths, that arise out of this passage. Rather than doing the in-depth Analysis. I'm going to highlight some things for you. Uh, the truths that I think ancient Israel is told by God are truths that Israel appears to have become blind to, and I think they are truths that we have become blind to. So let's get started. The first truth, I think, saturates the whole of the book of Ezekiel. It particularly dominates the first three chapters. So open, just if you're in chapter 12, flip back to chapter 1 and have a look. Let's refresh our minds about what we saw in chapters 1 to 3. First, chapter 1 records Ezekiel's vision of God. There is a stormy wind, you might remember. And in verse 4 we read that this window from the north is accompanied by a great cloud of brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And the images of God himself arriving in splendor. The vehicle that bears him is almost like a chariot, but it's grand. It's described in terms of wheels within wheels, drawn by awesome figures, carried by amazing creatures. It looks like this huge chariot and apparently without effort, the wheels and the creatures somehow move together bearing the throne of God. Then in verses 26 and 27, Ezekiel sees the form of God in what looks like a human form. He recognises that he is beholding the glory of the Lord. And he does the only thing appropriate in verse 28. He falls on his face before the God of all the earth, a God who is real, a God who is holy, a God who is mobile and unrestrained, and a God who oversees all the world and his people wherever they are. Hence he needs a chariot to move around, as it were, right? Because he can be everywhere and anywhere. In chapters 2 and 3, we're told that this God knows his people, he knows their situation, he's aware of their sin, and he's commissioning Ezekiel in order to confront his people with it. Friends, these chapters introduce us to a truth that we contemporary people have thought we can do without. And that truth is this, that there is a God who oversees all of the world and that he matters. There is a God and he matters. That's why God has this constant refrain throughout the book. Uh, It is one which we hear often in the chapters that we'll look at tonight, and it is this. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. 
God's will is that all the world know who he is and take cognizance of it. The point is clear. Behind our world there stands an eternal being who is God. He's not absent. It's just that we refuse to see him, refuse to listen to him. But friends, don't be fooled. The one true reality behind this world is that there is a God and that this God matters. So let's move on now to truth number two. And this comes from chapter 12. So flip in your Bibles to chapter 12. Um, and the second truth comes from especially verses 1 to 20. Let's quickly survey the content and keep your eyes on the Bible as we do it. In chapter 11, Ezekiel sees God and his chariot again. In chapter 12, verse 1, he gives his word again. Ezekiel tells us the word of the Lord came, of God, the Lord came to me. And the word that God speaks is one which tells of the reaction of God's people to God's word. Look at verse 2. God speaks to Ezekiel of Israel and he says, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. You see, these people are active rebels against God. They reject God's word and so in verse 3, God tells Ezekiel to do some signs for them. I love Ezekiel. He's sort of, um, he's sort of way out there as a prophet. Uh, he's sort of uh, the Pentecostal of the Old Testament, you know. He does weird things at times, like lying on his side looking at bricks for X number of days and then lying on the other side looking at bricks for Y number of days and all these sorts of things. He's just an entrancing prophet. And what he does is a sort of ancient street theatre. I think it's because if you're so blind, then perhaps you need some creative ways to help you, uh, you know, understand what is going on. Um, anyway, it's, it's an innovative portrayal that will prompt questions and cut through blindness. Now, the first sign's described in verses 3 to 6. Ezekiel is to prepare baggage and to act like one going into exile. That is, he's to pack his bags and then look as though he's about to shift house, leave house. And the way he does it is he goes through, uh, you know, he digs a hole in the wall and goes out through the wall. I was once listening to a young Kenyan man on the radio who lived in a village during race conflicts in Kenya. And he described how the men of opposing tribes used to scour the village for young men. And they would knock on the doors and if they found young men, they would beat them, often to the point of death. So on this day, they knocked on his door. He lived in a mud hut, which is very fortunate because he went to the back, dug a hole in the wall and ducked out. That's exactly what is being said here. You see, uh, you will, your for foreigners will come against you and wage war against your city and you'll, you'll want to duck out the back door. Now, unfortunately, you'll be caught. Uh, what Ezekiel does is a graphic display of exile. He digs a hole, scrambles through it with his pack in the dark and demonstrates the coming judgment of the exile on Israel. He offers no word to its meaning, but the watchers of this little drama would have gone to bed wondering I wonder what he's doing. I wonder what this is all about. And then verses 8 to 16, God gives an explanation. Have a look at it. Verses 11 and 12, I'll read in particular. He's to say to the people of Israel, I am assigned for you. As I have done, so it will be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who's among them shall lift his baggage on his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall and bring him out through it. And he shall cover his face that he might not see the land with his eyes. Can you hear what's being said? Judgment is coming. God is clear. 
Then in verse 17, the Lord tells Ezekiel to engage in another sign act. And look at what he says. Son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink with trembling and with anxiety. He's to sit in front of people eating bread and drinking water. And as he does so, he's to visibly shake and tremble because he's so scared as he eats. Dramatically, he's to convey judgments coming. And as verse 19 says, the time will come when they too, the people, will eat like Ezekiel, eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water in dismay. The land, you see, will be stripped of all that it contains and all because of sin and violence by the people of God who live in God's land. Because they have acted against God and against each other, God will strip the land. Friends, this truth that arises out of this passage arises out of many others in Ezekiel. And it is this. There is a right way and a wrong way to live before God. And Israel has been living the wrong way. In the light of a God who matters, there is a a conduct that matters as well. Rebellion against God and his word is wrong. Violence against people is wrong. Why? Because God created humans for right relationship with him and with each other. And he called this nation of all nations on earth to be an example of this. And they have refused. They have rebelled against God by refusing to hear his word and to do his will. And they have filled their cities with violence against each other. So there are the first two truths. There is a God, he matters. And before this God, there is a right conduct and a wrong conduct. Now, third truth arises out of Ezekiel 12 and through to 21 to 13, 23. Let's have a quick look at the content. Three, these verses fall into three sections, as I said. However, they share a common thread. The main thread is the prophetic word. That is the word of God, the word from God. First thing I want you to notice is... Um, well, let's have a look at the detail of 21 to 28. Okay, chapter 12, 21 to 28. We're told that in Ezekiel's day, the people had a saying. Verse 22 describes it. Look at it. Apparently, the people used to say to each other, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. The second common saying is in verse 26. Because again, people used to say to each other, you know, you can imagine them walking down the street or over the dinner table or whatever. They would say, oh, the vision he sees is for many days from now and he prophesies for times long off. Okay? When you put the two together, what do you get? You get an overall tendency amongst the people of God, don't you? They think God's word is distant, perhaps in time and place and cannot be trusted It won't come near to them. It's not going to touch them at all. It belongs to someone else for some place else other than them. It can be forgotten then, can't it? As something for someone else in the future or someone in another location. Underneath all of this, God's people are saying, God himself cannot be trusted. Because if you can't trust God's word, you cannot trust God, can you? On the other hand, they're saying that God's word is not for them and for their time. In other words, it can just be neglected, pushed aside as irrelevant. Both amount to a tendency to push God's word away, which is to push God away. God's word tells us about God. God's word conveys God to us. As you read the word of God tonight, that's what God was doing. He was drawing near to us in his word, telling us about himself and his will and his, for his world. 
God's word conveys God to us. But let's move to chapter 13, for it tells us the other side. If God's people wanted to distance themselves from God's word in chapter 12, chapter 13 tells us they've got some willing accomplices in this, some helpers who will enable them to do this. So they will enable them to dodge God's word. You see, in the first 16 verses of chapter 3, we're told about false prophets. And their deceptive message is summarised in verse 10. Have a look at it. What do they do? They prophesy peace when there is no peace. Or, if you want to put it another way, they cover up God's word with whitewash. That is, it's to cover up, you know, all the nasty things on your wall. You paint it with this stuff, right? And take away the roughness and give it some smoothness and make it look nice and white uh, when it's not. They cut against the previous two truths, don't they? They indicate to God's people that God does not really matter and their conduct doesn't really matter. That's what's being said by these false prophets. God doesn't matter. Your conduct doesn't matter. There's only health, wealth, peace and prosperity for you. No judgment. All good. It's all white. It's not black. It's white. It's not rough. It's nice and pristine and clean and fine and glossy and promising. That's a lie. It is a painting over of the truth. And God's coming judgment will expose that falsehood and it will show how awful such a deception is. Look at verses 13 and 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath and there will be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash. And bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. That is God's word to the false prophets. Don't go around whitewashing walls because I will come and they will collapse on you. Now let's look at the final section on true and false prophecy. 17 to 23. 17 to 19 tell us about some women who acted like false prophets They prophesy out of their own hearts. They're women who prophesy probably using some sort of magic. Look at verse 18. They sew magic bands upon their wrists and make veils for their heads of all sorts of things and so on, for all sorts of people, and such things by those things. Can you see what they're doing? They're attempting to manipulate and exploit God's people. God's concern for his people can be seen by the constant repetition of the words, my people. False prophets corrupt, lead astray my people. These are my people. And you do not lead astray my people without something coming to you from the one who owns those people. In verses 20 to 23, God pronounces judgment on these witches. He will act in judgment on them as he did on the male prophets in 1 to 16. So two alternative portraits. On the one hand, God who wants truth for his people and sends prophets who will speak that truth. And that word is intended to draw people toward God through rep- to repentance and trust in him. And on the other, you have what? You have people drawing, through, drawing people into scepticism. At the same time, you have people helping scepticism by seeking to manipulate God on their behalf and telling falsehoods. So let's see if we can summarise this little bit of Ezekiel. The truth behind these verses appear to be this. There is theological truth 
and theological error. There is a theology that's right and a theology that is wrong. And the theology that is wrong has distinct characteristics. It whitewashes truth. Or it attempts to manipulate and tame God. It seeks to aid people in distancing themselves from the discomfort of God's word coming to them. Friends, let me tell you, there's no shortage of people in our world offering the same things that were offered in Ezekiel's world. None at all. In the week or two I've been here, I've heard of a number. There are outsiders to the Christian faith, and they could be anything from astrologers, magicians, necromancers, self-help advocates, a whole host of others who promise a way of avoiding truth and manipulating reality. But let me tell you, one of the great unfortunate things is there are insiders as well, aren't there? That is, there are a host of false prophets among the churches of God here in Malaysia and Australia and Singapore and everywhere else who promise peace when there is no peace, who offer prosperity without cost or discipleship without a cross or a social gospel without evangelism or relationship with God without a need for obeying God or a God who doesn't care about sin. Friends, our world is full of false theology just as Ezekiel's world was. Beware of it. Wherever God's truth is, there will be forces of darkness trying to squash it or diminish it or falsify it. Some will be obvious, but some will not be obvious. You see, some will be like their agent, the devil, who disguises himself as an angel of light. And you see it all the time. It looks so true. But when you just push at it a little bit, it undermines the core of gospel truth. Very prevalent in our world today. So be on your guard. So there's the first three truths. Did you get them all? There is a God and he matters. Before such a God, there is a conduct which is right and a conduct which is wrong. Three, before such a God, there's a theology that is right and a theology that is wrong. Now, our final truth. We've had hints of it in chapters 12 and 13, but it comes into flower in chapter 14. Let's take a quick run through it and see what we can find. Verse 1. Some elders come to Ezekiel, and God gives a secret word to Ezekiel in verse 3. Look at it. God says to him, Son of man, these men have taken idols in their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. See, what's happened is God has looked into the hearts of the leaders of his people, and he's found their hearts to be full of idolatry. Hypocritically, they appear before the Lord's messenger with their hearts actually somewhere else. Now, let me tell you, it is very easy to come pretending to be God's person or even come thinking you are God's person, but to have idols in your heart. It is possible to be here among the people of God today and actually have idols in your heart. And you look as though you're listening, but actually your heart's somewhere else, some other place. It's entirely possible. It happens all all the way through the history of God's people. But here in verses 4 and 5, God's word comes to God's prophet and promises judgment. In verse 6, he urges all Israel to turn back from their idols and he promises judgment. In 9 to 11... He promises judgment against the false prophets again. In 12 to 20, he indicates that his long-suffering is drawing to a close. Now, let me tell you, friends, God's long-suffering is long-suffering. 
I mean, you know, the people of God have been like this since the very day God, you know, the very month or so God brought them up out of Egypt. While he's giving them the Ten Commandments up the top of a mountain, they're down the bottom breaking at least the first two of them. And they've continued that way ever since. And that's a long time, let me tell you, from Exodus through to Ezekiel here is a long time. God has been very long-suffering. Time and time again, he has heard righteous intercessors say, please don't do it. Moses did it. He came down from the mountain, he saw what they'd been doing, and he's pleaded with God to relent from sending judgment, and God did. And lots of other prophets after him asked God to do the same. But what, what happens here is that he promises not even the most righteous intercessors will be able to save Israel this time. Look at verse 14. Even if God had Noah, Daniel and Job present in the land, their righteousness would not be able to turn back God's wrath. Can you see it? Verse 14, sorry, verse 21 indicates that God's wrath will come. It will come in the the form of four deadly acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild animals and pestilence. And yet, even in such fierce judgment, there will be mercy. Did you notice it? Even without intercessors, he's going to leave some survivors. Oh, that is so much like God. Always seeking to be compassionate and merciful where he can. As verse 23 says, they will know that it was not without cause that he did what he did. The survivors will acknowledge God's justice in judgment. So there are our four truths now, friends. Uh, So that's the main thing about Ezekiel, and now we'll try and draw it all together. There is a God and he matters. There is such a God, before such a God, there's right conduct and wrong conduct. Before such a God, there is a theology that's right and a theology that's wrong. And our fourth, there are consequences for neglecting or avoiding or resisting the first three truths. Okay, there are cons- the consequences are just judgment. So, friends, the notion of judgment, I think, has a bad press in our world. Um, but Ezekiel is clear God is God, God matters. God is holy, God is concerned for his world, God is concerned for his people. Ask yourself, if God was a God of judgment, what sort of, was not a God of judgment, what sort of God would he be? If he didn't act in judgment, what sort of God would God be? The answer is clear. He wouldn't be just, would he? Imagine you go to court, right, and someone has committed the most dastardly, worst sort of deed that you can imagine. And God says, ah, it's okay. sorry, the judge says, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's all all right. You'd want to remove that judge from office, wouldn't you? <laughs> because judges should be just. And a just judge will punish sin, will punish wrongdoing. You see, for God not to be just would mean he doesn't care about his people and he doesn't care for truth. Friends, a God of justice is a God of judgment. And a God without judgment is not a God of justice. And a God who is without justice and without judgment is not worthy of your worship. If God is God, then God is just and God must punish sin. So there's our four truths. Um, These truths are reflected in the very centre of biblical revelation. They're They're reflected in God's actions in Jesus. Let me show you. For when he sends into the world, he declares that he's God, doesn't he? And that he matters. When Jesus does battle with the religious authorities of his day, he declares to them, theology matters 
and truth matters, and if and and you ought to be teaching God's people truth. His words and his actions and his criticisms of others declare that he considers that there is right conduct and wrong conduct. He says, if you're treating people like that, stop. He says to the religious leaders of his day, don't let people get away with not honouring their father and their mother. Don't do it. Don't let them even use the law to make themselves do that. What's more, his death on the cross declares that wrong conduct deserves judgment. He takes that judgment upon itself. Wrong conduct must be punished. The cross declares that also God is just in that, that he punishes sin. But on the cross, he also announces, as the Old Testament has made constantly clear, that he loves mercy and that mercy will always triumph over judgment. Friends, in the midst of a world blind and deaf to God, God sends his son into the world with a resounding declaration The truths announced by Ezekiel and the rest of the Old Testament are true. God is God. God does matter. There's right conduct. There's wrong conduct. There's right teaching. There's wrong teaching. And neglect of those truths is worthy of judgment. He also announces that he is the one who turns away judgment if he is turned to. There is Jesus who can take the penalty for our sin. So what do we do with all of this? I've got about two or three things in terms of how we can apply this to ourselves. I'm saying that if the truths of Ezekiel are truths that they are truths that determine our destiny, they tell us who God is and how God will act toward us, and they give us insight into his character. So in wrapping up, I, I want to speak just about how we can respond. I've got a number of suggestions. Here you are. You might like to write them down. Number one, take a good, hard look at your spiritual eyes and your spiritual ears. Let's ask ourselves whether the daily grind of life has blinded us to reality or perhaps even caused our ears to be blocked to God's word. Friends, the danger with blindness is that it can happen so slowly that you might not notice it's going on until it's too late. Now, the fault with me is that I'm getting old and so my hearing is going, my eyes are going... But, you know, there could be something really wrong, not just old age. So I go regularly to a doctor to have those things tested out. Friends, the danger with blindness is it can happen so slowly. The same thing can happen with, can happen with, clearing, with hearing. So may I urge you to actually take a good spiritual look in the light of God's word that we've heard today. See how your ears are going and do a test on your spiritual eyesight. And make sure you're hearing God's word well. And make sure you're not blind to the truths we've explored today. That's my first suggestion. Check spiritual eyes and ears. Second suggestion, determine that when God confronts you with truth, that you will be be determined not to evade it. Now, I don't know if you have these in Malaysia, but in Australia, in banks, tellers behind the, you know, tellers in banks have a button very close to where they are. I don't know whether it's I don't even know where it is, but I know it's there. And if you if they think someone's going to rob the bank, do you know what they do? They hit it. Either they tap it with their foot or they hit some button, I don't know. But do you know what happens when that happens? These walls of glass or whatever go shooting up. Now I think a lot of us are like that with spiritual truth. Right? God comes to us and we can see God coming sometimes and we hit the button so it doesn't get too close to us. 
right? So God can't get in and get past the barrier. Uh, friends, I urge you not to hit the button. <laughs> um, you cannot keep running from spiritual truth for too long. Before long, you will just put the you'll put the shield up continually, and God will be shut out. Now, when God God's truth exposes you, embrace it. And embracing it, you will learn and grow. So in my own Christian life, when God gets close to me and I know it's going to be hard, I try and say I'm going to embrace it. Why? Because I know if God's going to teach me, I'm going to be in a better place afterwards, even though it may hurt. You see, it may be painful, but it will result in spiritual growth. My third suggestion is you do what you can do to stop the corruption of truth. Some attempts at corrupting the truth are open and profoundly wrong. Others are more subtle, like the devil behind them. Some are propagated by evil people with Satan behind them. Others are propagated by people with idols in their hearts. And even others are put forward by good people with good intentions, who are just wrong. This world's love affair with toleration has blinded us and made us unwilling to name falsehood as such. Mistaken ideas of love have downplayed truth. Friends, the world and the Christian church is full of falsehoods and replete with false prophets. In this context, let us be like Ezekiel and the prophets of old. Let's be like the Lord Jesus and the apostles. Let's be champions of truth and guard the truth. Let's speak truth ourselves. And let's correct and rebuke wrong when we see or hear it. Friends, we must love God even, we must love even as God has loved us. However, that doesn't mean good theology doesn't matter. And it doesn't mean that bad theology is to be put up with. Right theology, right thinking about God does matter. To let falsehood thrive is to let go of truth. And to let go of truth is to not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And our Lord Jesus knew this. And that's why he spoke of God's punishment on false teachers. He warned that those who cause his disciples, his little ones he called them, to stumble, would suffer the worst sort of punishment. You see, God loves his people. And he loves truth. And he wants us to be champions of it, proclaiming it, living it, combating its opponents and giving ourselves for it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all the earth. Therefore, you are our God, the one to whom we must give all allegiance. Father, we thank you that you love your people and you love truth. Please help us to be champions of it, proclaiming it, living it, opposing its opponents and giving ourselves for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.